Welcome back to episode 15. I'm Lindsay. And I'm Lauren. And this is A Place in the Courtroom. Cue dance. No, no one's dancing with us. All right. That's cool. Okay, welcome back to our second episode for Bike Safety Awareness Month. We hope that you have already listened to last week's episode with Melissa Rose and John Moore. If you have not yet done that, please go do that so that that way you can get part two, which we have today with two more awesome special guests. We do. And I think definitely listen to that first one this episode might not make a ton of sense if you just start here. So at least go back one episode. We hope you go back all the way to the beginning and start over. Uh, But we have two very special guests, like Lauren said. So one of them is my partner, Doug Gordon, Miles Sirizniani in Fresno. And then we have John Fowler, who was our, I guess, not really co-counsel, but he had another plaintiff. Um, So he was the other plaintiff's counsel during this case from Fowler, Helsel, and Vote. Um... And they are in the Fresno area as well as up in the Sacramento area. Um, and so we're so happy to have both of you guys with us today. Thanks, Thanks for having us. Be here. Yeah. Thank you for, you know, thank you for coming. And so we have some kind of basic questions that we want to cover um, since, you know, not all of our listeners are lawyers or hopefully have not had to go through a personal injury case before. So that's what both of you guys do. Right. And John, you do a little employment. Yes. Employment and personal injury. Okay. So at the beginning of this case, so you represented David Bray, right? That's correct. And David Bray was riding just behind Melissa Rose in the, in the cycling line. So their cases were kind of intertwined and these cases were consolidated. Right. So I kind of want to talk about that because for a while, I mean, we knew, it, it came in to, to our office um, and we started pretty early on. And I think we went a couple months without realizing that David had a case and that you were kind of tracking independently. That might have been right. I believe you filed first. And, I think uh, so. We were, uh, I think David might have been just a couple months behind Melissa in seeking counsel. Mm-hmm. So one of our questions is, what does it look like? Well, I, I know the answer. Um because I also do this with Doug, but what what do you do when you first get that call? You know, for either of you, what does it look like when somebody says, hey, I'm injured? How do you evaluate the case and start figuring out who's responsible? So I can start uh, on that. Uh, the name of our firm is Miles Sears and Iani, and Mr. Sears was the one who really built up the personal injury uh, practice 40, 50 years ago. And what he, I, he passed on before I got into the practice, but uh, he sort of is the one who established a lot of principles that the lawyers here have followed. And one of those, and I, I actually, I've later heard other people talk about it. So I was like, oh, well, I guess Sears didn't invent that. But anyway, what he always talked about was the three-legged stool. And so that a case needs to have um, a tort, an injury, and some means of of paying. So what that means, breaking it down, is a tort is um, uh, really typically some sort of negligent conduct or some sort of wrongful conduct on behalf of 
someone who is apart from the plaintiff, apart from the injured person, and not the plaintiff's employer. If it's the employer, then that's workers' comp. That's a different ball game, and it's tedious, and we aren't going to talk about that. I hope. But no. um, so what we're looking for is someone who's at fault, who is neither of those things, who's a third party. So we do third-party litigation, and then we need to know um, that that apart from fault, that that there is an injury, and um, that the injury the injury is going to drive the size of the case, the value of the case. And so if it's not a large enough injury to cover the costs and the expenses of the case, then that's very difficult for us to take on. And, and we may, you know, send those folks somewhere else, or sometimes we have them, we suggest that they try and resolve those cases on their own if they're small enough. Uh, and then uh, a, a pot of money, really. And uh, in our practice, at least, we focus on insurance. And so um, we have spoken with dozens or hundreds of people over the years who have gotten an injury, which may be significant, and can point to clear fault on the part of somebody else. So that's the first two legs of the stool. And then there's no insurance or there's inadequate insurance. Um, and uh, I just spoke with someone this week who uh, the, these folks, the, the woman, her, her mother, uh, unfortunately was, was uh, unhoused and was living in a tent by the side of the freeway. And a drunk woman, sloppy drunk, came along going too fast and ran over this woman while she was sleeping in her tent. Uh, that clearly is horrendous behavior on the part of the person who did it, and it resulted in the biggest sort of injury, which is a death. But that woman's not going to have any, any, there's no money there to recover for these folks. So there's not a whole lot that we can do for them. It's, people will sometimes say we don't care about the money, but the money is a huge element. These cases cost a lot of money, and if there's no money at all, uh, then you go into the hole and people end up with a, a result that in the end is not very satisfactory. So when a case comes in, that those are the elements that we at least are looking for. Yeah, I, I could dovetail on uh, Doug's comments. I really liked uh, the three-legged chair analogy, and I don't think we have any comparable uh, rubric for uh, how we do this other than through uh, the experience that we've kind of gleaned in, in having good cases, bad cases, and many in-between cases. Um, certainly, I, I mentioned earlier that I do employment and personal injury work. The intake process for me is uh, the first step typically in investigating the case. Um, there, There's some opportunity uh, even before you meet a client to potentially learn about a case through the media, through filings, through word of mouth from uh, other sources. And that certainly happens. Uh, but most often, it's the first time you speak with the client. And the questions you're asking that go to uh, the points that Doug was making about what would make a, a case that would be business worthy uh, for most firms, uh, you know, involve questions of uh the individual's conduct as well as the conduct of any wrongdoing people, um, the location, uh, certainly the circumstances, depending on the type, the nature of the action. Um, in this particular uh, case, with David Bray and Melissa Rose, there was uh, a, a large 
pile of sand in a roadway. And we had two people that were very injured. Um, the question in this case really came down to whether or not there was an avenue for redress uh, against a public entity. And that's certainly a question that you'll be asking at an intake in any case like this. Who are the potential defendants? And do we have any potential limitations on pursuing them? Um, Doug mentioned uh, the issue of an uninsured defendant, potentially. We also uh, attempt to resolve these claims through insurance. Oftentimes, uh, we're dealing with a car accident type case where the individuals involved might not have personal assets sufficient to satisfy a judgment or to settle the claim based on the injuries involved. Uh, so that investigation goes on. I have, I have one right now, in fact, where the individual was working. So there's a workers' compensation insurance claim. There, the individual was hit by what appears to be a stolen vehicle uh, with hit-and-run drivers. Um, and finding uh, insurance on that third-party side in this case is uh, difficult. We've had no contact um, from the defendants uh, in, in potential owners of the vehicles and uh, have a lawsuit pending in, in court. Um, and we also have an uninsured motorist claim against uh, my client's employer's insurer, who's reluctant to participate with the insurance until we track down any other third-party policies. So these are all questions that might come up in an intake uh, that you'd explore. And every case is different. So every avenue of of exploration is going to be slightly different. But I think Doug's analogy is, is perfect. Uh, for the business of a law firm, in order to keep doing business, uh, you need to really evaluate those three main legs of the stool. Um, in, in this particular case, we had, as John uh, said, two uh, badly injured people. Um, and we could take a look at, it was pretty easy. And I know that I took an early look at that, uh, sand pile, but it was already cleared off by the time we, right. we got there. Um, but we had a lot of photos taken by the CHP, which were, I mean, vital. If we hadn't had those photos, we couldn't have yeah. done the case, I don't think. Um, and so those showed what, you know, pretty, uh, instinctively you say, that's not supposed to be like that. And it was a, a sand pile that was um, that covered the entire bike lane. It was 100 feet long and four to seven inches deep at the deepest parts. Well, you can't ride a, a road bike through that. So you can see the 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 negative behavior, the 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 fault. You can see the injuries, and then the county, as a public entity, has resources. Uh, the state has resources. The federal government, if you sue them, they have resources. So that's not so much the issue. Um, part of the issue, though, looking at suing a county is that guess where you have to sue them? In their county. You can't sue this county of Fresno in Visalia, in Tulare uh, Superior Court. That's not the law. And so you sue the county of Fresno in the county of Fresno, and guess who the jurors are? They're residents of the county of Fresno. So those are kind of things that you look at in a case like this and deciding to take it. And then the the law can get complicated with public entities uh, in terms of immunities and everything. Maybe we'll get into that uh, in a little while. But just in, in terms of looking at the case from up front, that, that certainly is the way that we look at it. And then John mentioned also we have to think uh, what did our clients do wrong? And... Um, 
uh, and if we don't think they did anything wrong, what's the jury going to think? Are they going to blame our clients for anything? And I can tell you that M Melissa, our client, ultimately the jury found her, I think, 25% responsible. And that was a reduction of her, of her judgment. And so you kind of have to factor that in when you're looking at a case. And I think here, too, we also had the complicating factor of the hit and run vehicle. That that's also that's a strange factor, and it was. yeah, and and it was difficult to know what exactly to do with that. The I guess uh, people listening to this will know the facts, but Melissa know a little bit. Okay, tried to go through, tried to navigate the the sand pile, mm -hmm. and her effort was to try and stay inside the bike lane because she right. thought it's more dangerous out there where the three ton cars are. And so um, in trying to do that, she got stuck in the sand, fell over on her left side, and then her left arm was struck by this vehicle that hit her, stopped, I don't know, what, 30, 40 feet up the road, and then yeah. took off. Right. And she told us last week how that car kind of haunted her for a while. Uh, you know, she'd be driving up and down that road repeatedly for work and she'd be kind of on the lookout for the car um and i think it took her a while to resolve you know her feelings about the car that hit her and left i, I don't um, blame her for that we we no. hired a, we hired an investigator to go looking for that car up in the area yep. of prather and up around there and so i thought they'd seen that car she did. parking lot i think yeah melissa thought that okay yeah and uh and so we we tried uh but ultimately that's kind of a hole in our case that we have to talk to the jury about and figure out how we're going to deal with that yeah it, in fact that uh that it was more of a hole uh it could have been more of a hole than it worked out to be i suppose the jury got it and didn't pay much attention to the the hit and run driver However, there were efforts by the defense to make sure the juror knew that there was someone that was not in the courtroom to blame this whole mess on uh, if they didn't want to blame it on uh, the county of Fresno. And that becomes very dangerous um, for the plaintiffs uh, in navigating that, that narrow you know, passage uh, to, to get through that argument. We, we also had an interesting issue. Doug mentioned the, the size of the sand pile. And we also talked about Melissa's uh, encounter with the vehicle. This was, uh, you know, a bike lane on a 55-mile-an-hour roadway. So that, that I think, combined with the, the size of that sand pile um, almost shook, shook me into a position of this has to be a case. And sometimes you don't know if you're going to get to uh, the end game, um, But the circumstances need to be uh, presented. Uh, in court, and the public entity needs to be notified, in this case, public entity, of uh, the seriousness of the, of the omission or the conduct that they're involved in. So, John, kind of going off that a little bit, and this is for Doug as well, when you take on a case like this and you're doing that initial intake, is there ever that moment where you're inclined to take the case because you think about the possibility to either make change or to prevent this from happening to somebody else? Is that Does that at all factor into your decision? For my part, it, it, I think I, I almost acknowledged it did in this case, and I think I would. Um, it's certainly something that we'll consider. The, the possibility uh, of correcting a larger problem for a larger community is what we hope to do. I mean, that, that's, that's, uh, 
that's even a, a more wonderful result than getting a result for your specific client. And even in the employment world, we have uh, theories that allow you to sue on behalf of one person to benefit a larger group. Uh, and I think that goes to the heart of the American justice system is doing right by one can do right by many. Um, and it's something that always factors in. Lawyers also uh, look at marketing opportunities on some cases. I have to acknowledge there are some cases that will draw more attention. And a bicycle case uh, like this uh, was perceived to be a case that was not going to be easily winnable. And in fact, the defendants were fairly confident in their position and largely forced the case to trial. Um, taking on a case like that's fun for that reason, um, especially when you have nothing to lose. So, uh, and you could potentially really change the outlook on a major issue. And, and, you know, bicycling in Fresno County has been a major, major issue. Lots of participants, lots of effort and time and money have been expended on that process. I, I, I would say I have to be straight up and honest. Uh, most of the time, that's not what I'm looking at. Um, I, we're looking at what can we do for this particular client um, and and that guides the decisions we make in our practice. But I will say that I think all four of us on this on this broadcast um, are on this are doing this kind of work in part because we feel like this is the right side of the law, that we're on the side of people who get hurt because somebody bigger than them uh, caused them to get hurt. So when we're suing the county, it's just us. And it's um, and our, our firm, we've sued um, General Motors and Ford Motor Company in the past. And it's just our little firm going to Detroit and, and taking on those big firms. And I know uh, John and his firm took on uh, Greyhound bus lines uh, some years ago. And when you take on those big monsters and they bring in big deal lawyers, I, there's a sense of you're, you're doing some good in general right there because you're the one that's willing to take on the the fight of the of the little guy against the big big uh, um whatever they are the big folks the david and goliath uh analogy. yeah there you go david and goliath i was reaching for a metaphor thanks i just got a call from amazon's attorneys yesterday on a case that i have a personal injury case actually involving a delivery driver a dog bite delivery location issue and from a very large law firm. And if you had that exact experience, you know you're going to start working real hard pretty soon that DeMar was just filed. Yeah, so that's an aside. But I, I can yeah. also say uh, it's easier, and this is counterintuitive, I think, but I've discovered over the years, it's easier to work with good lawyers who know what they're doing oh, yeah. than it is to work with schlepper lawyers who you never know what's going to mm -hmm. come out of their mouth. Um, so we, we welcome those, uh, those big cases against big firms. And, um, I, I have come to admire some of those big deal lawyers, not so much some of the other big deal lawyers, some of the national firms, <laughs> not so impressed with them. I think it also highlights the struggle of, I mean, we can talk about suing a public entity. They have, like you mentioned, Doug, they have a lot of immunities. You have... In some cases, not here, the, you know, the dangerous condition is too small. That was not our case here. But then they flipped it around and argued, okay, it's too big. It was so open and obvious. Everybody should have noticed this. And so it's 
you get a ton of arguments, you get a ton of different immunities. It just it complicates the case a lot more than suing a, a private person. I th- that certainly is is true. I you know it was it was remarkable to me that some of the arguments that they made here. One was that um, a little bit of sand. They said every they got everyone to agree that you can slip on sand. So if a little bit of sand is dangerous, a lot of sand is no more dangerous. Exactly, it's exactly the same thing. Uh, that's the stupidest argument I ever heard. But they never let go of that argument. I, it was they, in their appe- their appellate briefs. It was. They they still made that same argument. But again, some years ago, we sued Ford Motor Company over a defect that made a, a Ford F two fifty. Uh, very, very hard to steer. It would lock up. It would take away the power steering in the middle of a crisis event. And Ford's argument was, we agree that it makes it harder to steer, but it doesn't make it impossible to steer. I thought, that's the dumbest argument I ever heard. And they wiped their ass with the the case. Uh, We lost uh, badly in that case. And I assume they had focus grouped it and figured out the cells, and so you you, you can't always tell what's going to what, uh, what's going to work, I suppose. So when now we're kind of talking about dangerous condition a little bit. Um, can you guys talk about why you chose to go with suing the county of Fresno and why you chose dangerous condition and what it is? Go ahead, John. Yeah, I could. Uh... The dangerous condition of uh, public, the, the government's immune from suit generally. So you start there and then you have to look for avenues that have to be, you know, met with statutory authorization to bring a lawsuit. So um, it turns out that, uh, what is it? Government code 830A. Is that right? I don't Yeah, know. I have I to look so. them up every time. It's in the brief. I'll say to the brief. Yep. Um, (laughs) It allows you to sue the government if there is a dangerous condition of public property. It doesn't end there, though. There's a lot more to it. The property has to be dangerous uh, to foreseeable users who are using the property with due care. What does that mean? You know, Mm -hmm. so we go through a lot of argument about this. And the defendant's position on that was that because our clients uh, used the property, ran into the sand pile. In other words, rode road bikes into a sand pile. They were per se not reasonably foreseeable users and reasonably foreseeable people would ride around it. And that was kind of their theory that this was avoidable and even and it was so obvious and avoidable that nobody ever should have, have crashed into it. Um, and I think we, we took some pains to rebut that by relying on bicycling safety standards and demonstrating that this activity that maybe not a lot of members of the Fresno County jury pool would necessarily be participating in. And maybe even there's a some degree of bias against cyclists sharing the roadway with motorists uh, that was acting in the case. And so we're sort of uh, fighting out of those, those two uh, boxes in some respect, but we were, we were able to show that there were, standards governing this activity, that these standards were being met by our clients at the time of of the collision, and that deviation from those standards, you know, wouldn't have saved anybody from from this fate. The problem was the condition. And using the bicycle lanes, just like other road bicyclists uh, do or are expected to do, um, there was no easy way to avoid the, the hazard. 
uh, either by going into the traffic lane where you can encounter a vehicle collision or you uh, go into the, the condition itself and that obviously uh, caused David to fall. Another thing that was a, an argument we really had to fight on this case uh, multiple times was the concept of um, assumption of risk. And the law in California says that if you're participating in a physical activity that runs the risk of significant injury, then you assume the risk of getting injured in that activity. It, the, the, that principle and that doctrine is intended to apply to sporting activities. The first key case from the early 90s involved playing tackle football or, or no touch football in the backyard during halftime of the Super Bowl. And somebody got their finger broken and they sued the other person. And the, the court said, look, you're playing football, even though it's just touch football, you might get hurt. So if you get hurt doing some activity where you know you might get hurt, how are you going to sue somebody else for that? It's 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 on you. Um, unfortunately, that that doctrine has spread and spread, and so it it's not as limited as it once was. And in our case, um, the argument kept coming up that these folks are participating in road biking. They know that they can fall. Therefore, if they fall, that's just one of the risks, just one of the hazards. And we we had to keep thinking and thinking and, and fighting that. And ultimately, the, the, the thing that summed it up best for me is if this were mountain biking, then mountain biking, then biking through a, a, a big sand pile that's seven inches deep might well be considered, you know, one of the risks that you might fall from that. That might be part of the the inherent nature of the sport, which is one of the, the guiding lights on that, that that law. But that for road cycling, riding through something like that is not inherent to the sport. You can get rid of sand piles like that and you don't change road biking. You still have road biking. And, and that's correct on the law, but we had to fight that, as I said, multiple times. And the lawyers on the other side were not the uh, high-end lawyers that we would like to be against, and they made arguments that were not backed up by law, either because they didn't understand the law or because they were misrepresenting the law to the court. And that's a whole other thing you have to deal with is explain to the court, hang on, what everything that guy just said is not the law. And so that's that's a whole thing you have to deal with. Yeah. So one thing that happened in this case is we brought motions for summary adjudication on the issue of primary assumption of risk, saying that this isn't part of road bicycling, and therefore it shouldn't be uh, considered as a defense in this case. And we lost, you know, on that issue. The court agreed that par uh, primary assumption of risk applied to this this activity. Um, and I think there's still a question mark issue there. I mean, I've I've had another case where it was a backyard uh, home run derby competition and the bat flew out of someone's hand and hit someone else in the face. And that was considered primary assumption of risk applied. Um, so it really does expansively apply in these tort cases. Um, and it's just another uh, tool that defendants have to avoid, you know, paying for the harms that they cause. I, I feel that in, in this case, you know, we, we might have lost on the application of the doctrine argument, but then the next level is, well, whether the county did something to increase the risks in the sport of road, road bicycling. 
I mean, we were arguing that encountering sand, like Doug said, is not part of the activity of road bicycling, and therefore PAR shouldn't apply. But the court allowed it in. And so I feel that on a lot of these affirmative defenses we beat, we could honestly say we were fighting from behind on, on a lot of these rulings. Um, and this was a good example of that, because I think the jury saw through it that uh, you can't put a gigantic sand pile in a bike lane and say you're not doing anything uh, you know, to increase the risk to people that you've invited to cycle there. Um, it seems right. common sense. I don't know how we even right. got a trial out of this, but right. <laughs> it sounds. We, we, we got a trial out of this because they offered us five grand between our two clients. I believe that was the offer. <laughs> That's right. Five grand combined, and with uh, multiple surgeries. Right. Combined yeah. between our clients, and the defense lawyer, lawyer just kind of smirked as he walked out the door. So we had to go to trial. And on, on, on the doorsteps of your law firm. That was. Yes, yes it I was. remember that day. Yep. So I, w I want to talk about discovery because, I mean, we've talked about these immunities, and I know it's something that we consider really before we even take a case. We know when we're suing a government entity, we're going to face those immunities. We're going to have a tough time. Um, and so we have a process called discovery. Um, do one of you guys want to explain it, or do you want me to? It's, it's I, your I, show, I, man. Yeah. You know they hear from me enough. <laughs> they listen to me every week. We don't always have special guests. Well, I, I can tell. Um, uh, so one of, one of the issues here was we have to prove in proving a dangerous condition that the, the public entity here, the county, either created this dangerous condition or allowed it to exist for a long enough time. They should have cleaned it up. They, 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 it was there a long enough time. They should have been able to, to figure that out and keep it safe. And that's part of their job. That's part of their duty is to, to look for that. So a lot of the discovery then was finding out, did you folks do any sort of inspection? Uh, really, the law requires you to do an inspection to see if, if things are dangerous. That's not a, a, a duty that's uh, that's on everybody. Um, but But if you are a public property owner, you have that duty. And so we did discovery by asking questions, taking depositions of the county workers. We found out who are the county workers, and there are five or six all men. And we would say, what do you do for an inspection program? What's your program? And how, how um, regimented is it? How, how regular is it? And that's where they, they had very lousy evidence that they didn't really have an inspection program. That's right. And, and, and touching on, so maybe backing up a second, there was, we, we conduct discovery using various tools that um, are available, including written questions that you serve to the other side, uh, requesting documents, asking questions, asking them to admit various things uh, about the facts of the case or the genuineness of documents in the case. And this foundational information you could then use at, at depositions to ask questions of uh, witnesses. We we deposed the uh, responding officers to the scene. We, one of the first pieces of information we got about the case was the police report. And the police report had in it information about uh, the investigation that was conducted on scene by some of the responding officers. And that gives you some foundation to ask questions to the other side. Um, and ultimately, like Doug was suggesting, we had to pin this on the county somehow. We knew that they probably didn't back a truck up and dump sand onto the roadway to block the bike lane. And if it wasn't a condition created 
specifically by a county employee, um, then we had to prove, like Doug was suggesting, that the condition had existed long enough to be discovered and, uh, and corrected. And that's where I think the, the case really came down. We, we had, uh, they didn't have very good answers to those questions. Uh, and they had a, a, a county district immediately to the south that did have pretty good answers to those questions, that did inspections on, I believe it was a monthly basis mm-hmm. uh, of their roadways for conditions in bike lanes. And these bike lanes were, were not just, you know, a side of a road that people were using. They were designated. They were painted striped lines that were obscured completely by this hazard. So, I mean, again, that that juxtapose right there gave us some ammunition to say you weren't doing it the way your other guys are doing it. And there must be a reason. You, you just weren't doing anything. And I think... What was even worse that we figured out in Discovery is that district that was right south of them, they were frequently sweeping. So they had the tools to have the county employees come out and sweep the bike lanes to ensure that it was it was clear and, you know, available for cyclists. And then in the district where our case was, they would just drive around and look out the window when they were driving from site to site. There was no sort of real method for how they were inspecting these roadways. And then they only swept it once a year, right before climb to Kaiser in summer. The the big bicycle race climbing right. up to the, the peak up there. Right. Exactly. So, I mean, it had sat from June until March, went through the entire winter with, with no attention, no sweeping. I also right. believe they, they testified they only sweep for climb to Kaiser if when they're requested to do so uh, by the organizers. That if the organizers oh, didn't I think make you that are request, right. They might yep. have done nothing. Um, yeah. You know, when I think our theme was you built the bike lanes, you acknowledge a duty to inspect and maintain them, um, and you fell short on this occasion, if not on others, you know, but certainly on this one. The other interesting thing was the CHP officer's response. Because, you know, we've, we've done other dangerous condition cases, and law enforcement isn't always willing to cite the dangerous condition as a cause of the accident or the cause of whatever, you know, whatever injury ends up happening. Um, and here the officer did not tolerate that sand and actually called someone from the County to come out that day <laughs> and shoveled it. Yeah. He's, he stayed there. I, I'd mm-hmm. forgotten about that part, but he stayed there and uh, he, the, the other guy brought a shovel and the two of them shoveled it off. So On the, a the Sunday, yeah, the officer just didn't leave. He just stayed mm-hmm. there and shoveled, shoveled it all the way. And then you took photos showing that um, the roadway underneath was wet. And so you could see the outline of where the sand had been. And that was a great photo for us, or a great couple of photos. And also that it had been wet. And so we could say, okay, this clearly there's been rain. We We got data on the most recent rain, which was about three weeks before. Um, and, and so we, we could say this sand has been there for that length of time. All that was useful stuff. So once you're, you know, through the discovery process, um, and you have a, a other side who doesn't offer any money and kind of, how do you go about prepping for trial? This case, um, had a, a component, uh, that not every case has as to as much an extent, but that's a lot of expert witnesses that you know were going to be brought in, uh, and even uh, we discovered one of them 
at his percipient deposition, one of the bicycle riders uh, in this group happened to have some experience in, um, you know, w wastewater, water management, roadway water management at construction sites and some other facilities. He can talk somewhat eloquently about how through the process of erosion, the sand wound up on uh, the, the bike lane. And so we made him, you know, we declared he, him an expert in the case, a uh, non-retained expert, and he wound up uh, testifying as an expert uh, on those issues, roadway conditions and, and erosion control, which I thought was just fabulous. And he kept pulling out more and more gems um, as, as we went through. And then we, of course, had, you know, gentlemen that we hired to give testimony about the condition itself and, uh, you know... Rene Castaneda provided, you know, his uh, his accident reconstruction for the bicycles uh, encountering the sand, and we had to measure it all out. And there's you have wonderful diagrams that I'm sure still uh, ordain the walls at Miles Sears and Iani of uh, <laughs> <laughs> these you know, these recreations that were done. Um, I always wonder, you know, both sides had accident recon. I think they they brought in another expert. Uh, maybe more of a conspicuity or human factors expert. Right. Um, and trying to tell us that, you know, the sand was re very visible from a long distance away and everybody should have known of the hazard. Um, so we, I think preparing for those, to fill those, to plug those holes in, at trial um, on all the material issues you anticipate you're going to have to face was uh, was part of the trial preparation because we, I think we might have anticipated we had a shot at settling the case when we went into the mediation. We brought a judge, you know, from Visalia uh, to Fresno, and, you know, he was unaware that there was not going to be a meaningful offer. And, um, you know, and after that, we uh, were, were really looking at the, the facts remaining to plug. Yeah, well, one thing I'll say about that is just that the way that we prepare cases, and I know John and his partners are, are the same way, is you prepare to go to trial. And so as long as you do that, then when the case that you were expecting to settle doesn't settle, you say, okay, then let's keep preparing. And so you've got the information that you need. So when we had that mediation a month, month and a half before trial, and it went nowhere, we didn't have to scramble too much at that point to try and put a case together. The case was together. So it was a matter of organizing mostly at that point. We did have to do the expert depositions towards the end. Um, uh, two things about the experts. One was that what, the one, uh, Darren Cousineau, that, that John was talking about, that was great because we just, he was one of the riders. He was second in line, I think, in, in, on the day of the accident. So he saw what happened, saw all the, the conditions. And then it turned out he's a smart guy who had all sorts of unusual expertise in roadway erosion. So we're like, holy cow, there we go. Perfect. And so we named him and he did an excellent job. The other thing is, Rene Castaneda, the reconstructionist that John mentioned, um, his firm is very precise in the, they take a lot of photos, but then they also uh, do um, laser uh, imaging of the accident scene. So, and then they can input that into uh, their computers and, and develop um, these really precise drawings and, and stuff. And one of the things that he told us just before he was about to be deposed, I think, was something that 
we hadn't realized after two years of looking at this, which was that the bike lane was nominally four feet. In the plans, it was supposed to be four feet. And it was, in fact, four feet most of the way. And then it narrowed to three feet just before this area where this dirt was. And so what we realized is, oh, so you're, you're, what you're saying is if the lane had been the, 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 the four-foot width that it's supposed to be, the same sand could have been here and our riders could have ridden around the sand but stayed in the bike lane. And um, that was pretty valuable and pretty useful. And um, the defense hated that argument, and they got mad, and they accused me of misconduct and bringing it up in closing argument. It wasn't misconduct. I got a ruling not. from the judge. Uh, <laughs> and I said, Judge, I want, an, I want a ruling from this court. And it was not misconduct. Uh, they just hadn't thought about it. And so they kept relying on that and say, oh, they took us by surprise. Well, you think a little harder, pal. That's that's the answer to that. Well, it's not, it's not illegal. It's just thinking it through. I think their rebuttal was to add the design def, uh, design it was. into the case. So so when you, you argued that, you argued exactly what you just said. Mm-hmm. We're not criticizing the design. Right. Uh, we're no. simply making a liability argument that based on the design, if you superimposed it, over this section, you would note that the bike lane stripe is a lot closer to the curb, and that yeah. caused more of a significant compression of space. I, I don't thought know. that was usually judge. I, I think split the baby on that. Well, she her ruling was. I, I she says I'm going to rule. There was no intentional misconduct. And I was like, damn it, judge. <laughs> I, I didn't say that, but in my head, I was like, you know, there was no misconduct of any sort. But you kind of got to take what you can get. And, and <laughs> She let me complete my closing argument the next day. So that's right. That, was fine. <laughs> that addition, though, of design immunity was just surprising. Yeah, that's nonsense. Because, I mean, it came up as we're, we're figuring out jury instructions, which were read right before, you know, closing argument. And really, the burden is on defense to prove design immunity. And there's certain... There's one element that the judge has to decide, which they had absolutely no evidence to support. But I mean, it was kind of, I, I can see where she didn't want it to be an appeal. So she lets it go forward and leaves the jury to decide the questions of fact. But yeah, I I mean, I think you're right. I think John's right that she split the baby that she's saying. Yeah, I didn't, you're right. Okay, we're going to let you make the argument, but we're going to let the defense rebut it in this way. Which is unsupported by evidence, but you know, that's it was also I mean, they, they lost on it. Yeah, they <laughs> lost on it. Right. In <laughs> fact, I think it might have been unanimous. Uh, and they also had um, they they had some other defenses in the the jury skirted over. I think eleven one on reasonable uh, acts or something like that. Um, that's always they always throw that one in. Yeah, but we there's had, always we multiple. But we had many hurdles to overcome on that verdict form, and it just shocks me looking back at it that the jury made it all the way down. Yeah. So I, you have it open, right, John? Yeah, I do. How many questions is it? Yeah, total, uh, we get to, I think, 13, 18, 18 questions all the way through comparative. Um, and nine of them, half of them, were getting the defendant out of liability. 
And so, for our listeners who maybe don't know what a verdict form is, the verdict form, and please correct me if I'm wrong, um, is the form that you use and that the jury goes through when they're in their deliberations deciding how they want to assign fault, if there is fault, and you have to go through that in order, right? And you won't necessarily make it all the way down based on what your answers are, right? That's, that's right. right. It's it's a chain of questions, and if you if you answer yet if you answer number question number one yes, then go here. If you answer number one no, then go down here. And I, I can't put them together. I'm glad other lawyers have come along that I can say here, please put this together because I get too confused. And and it, it so even the easy ones are difficult, and this one was was odd. Yeah, there and, and that's exactly right. There are yes and no questions that say if you answered yes, go to question, you know, the next question or stop right here. Don't do any more questions, sign the verdict form and plaintiffs lose. And that happened nine times before we got to the potential win. And then even after the damage section, then the questions that are asked now was Melissa or David responsible for was the driver of the uh, unidentified vehicle responsible for all of this anyway to reduce the plaintiff's award and you and know, I think they f- unfortunately they found there was not a reduction right the, for they, the driver they, for the driver it was zero uh, for Melissa she was twenty five percent comparative fault and David had no comparative fault at all as far as, mm-hmm. as what I recall yeah Melissa was found thirty percent at fault for his injuries so he also had a reduction ah. Uh. Yeah. yeah. And then, you know, we both got reduced. Technically, David and Melissa could have sued each other in this situation. Right. Um, and this happens in some cases. You make uh, decisions that are based on factors that may not benefit the all possibilities of recovery, uh, you know, idea. Um, but of course, David and Melissa knew each other, were, were friends, and the point wasn't. Uh, finger pointing between them. It was uh, it was about what the county did, and I think we overcame that subtle uh, issue in the case too. That there could have been a conflict more exploited between our clients, and but, and it, I think it made the case stronger for both of us against the county that we weren't pointing fingers. And yes, yeah, right. You got one one point I'd like to make. I know uh, as I, it's 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 your ball game, Lindsay and Lauren, but. I, I know on your outline, there's um, one of the questions has to do with uh, working with another firm on the right. case. Mm-hmm. And that's particularly interesting to me because it was such a fabulous experience for me and unusual, I have to say, because most of the time when we're doing cases, it's us right. versus however many people are on the other side. And here we had uh, John and I worked together and we had different clients so we were making some different arguments but our interests mostly aligned you know for for a lot of it and the thing that was so fun to watch was i would make um my opening statement and then later closing argument or something like that and i spent hours and hours in multiple drafts thinking of everything i could think of and i thought i had it all i thought i'd thought of every point and had nailed every point that I wanted to make. And then John would get up and talk about things that I had not, that not, had not even crossed my mind that were brilliant, great arguments. And I was like, I, I wish I'd thought of that, but I'm glad that he thought of it and that he's up here and that we're on the same side. So um, that was, that was a, a, a really fun surprise for me. And so I don't know how it would be working with 
all lawyers because as i say i haven't done it a lot but this was a good one and i that it, it was cool to see that we complimented each other at least the way i saw it mm -hmm. was that we weren't repeating each other he was thinking of totally different things that had great validity and were very persuasive i feel like i, I agree with it was very collaborative i thought it was very useful to the, to the clients um to be able to present their own unique cases while at the same time emphasizing the strengths uh, in the others or the weaknesses pointed out right. by the other attorney in the defense case um it gave us almost two bites at it. Uh, if there was something that needed to be shored up, we would have had that opportunity. I don't think we ever really needed to. Uh, but, uh, you know, the, I've worked with other uh, multi-plaintiff, multi-lawyer cases before, and it doesn't always go uh, well. In fact, I could think of that Greyhound case that Doug mentioned. My partner, Jason, and Stuart Chandler almost went at it one day. I oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was my partner. He used to be a boxer. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. Okay. But, uh, but yeah, it was, it was definitely a, a, a good experience. Wonderful and, experience. And, and one of the things that we did that I thought worked really well is, first of all, as a plaintiff, you want to move the case along. If we drag the case out for a long time, the jury's probably going to blame us and hold us responsible for wasting their time. So we're trying to move it along as expeditiously as possible. Um, and so we made the decision early on, we don't need to both question each witness. And so we split them up. And I think we there was a le, an element of trust in knowing that I knew that if John got up and, and questioned this witness, I didn't have to worry about it. And we were, if we had both gone, done all of those witnesses, it, I don't know, would have greatly extended the, the, um, the time of the trial, which would not have benefited our clients. Yeah. Did you know each other before this? We knew kind, kind of, yeah, but um, not all that well. But I I knew John from when he worked at another firm years ago, and so I'd met him and um, had seen him around. I remember when we had this case and we found out that John had it too. I was like, oh, good, okay, so we we'll work with right. John. And I remember seeing John at Gazebo Gardens, which is the local beer <laughs> garden uh, a, a mile from my house, and seeing him and saying, hey we've got uh, this case together and I think they may th take this thing to trial. And John's like, yeah, okay. And uh, we're going to work it out. So th nice. that was really good. Yeah, It was... was so much fun working on it though. Cause I mean, I've had other plaintiffs counsels where I can't even get them to call me back. Mm. And I was like, how are we supposed to be pursuing this? If I can't even, there's no collaboration. Uh, you just, you end up taking the lead. And that was so nice here, not having to do that. We could share it. Oh, I thought you took the lead on most things. I felt uh, even in court, I, I had to, I was behind, you know, my client was behind your client in the cycling line. And so I, I maintained right. position. <laughs> right, you did. Yeah, yeah. You stayed no, in the I, pace line. No, Lindsay, and, and you can't sell yourself short on all the tremendous work you did on this case. I, was, uh, I mean, you. you were, you were, you were coming up with some of Doug's great thoughts, I'm sure. That's true. <laughs> yeah, you, you did some of those depots. And and I I will say too that this this case was fun in that respect in working with John. This was one yeah. of the most grueling cases I've prepared for. I spent all these hours just sitting in my living room with my laptop, just wishing I could do anything else and swearing that I was never going to try another case because <laughs> I was like, this is just too stressful. I know we're going to lose. I have to make these arguments anyway. Why am I wasting my time? No, I got to make the best argument I can. 
And so when we won, I was kind of shocked, to be honest. But I mean, I thought we had a good case and I thought we'd done a good job. But I've thought that about other cases, other trials as well. I've, you know, that I've thought, okay, I did a good job. We had a right case. And then I'd go wait for them to come tell me that the jury had uh, dumped us on our head. Mm -hmm. So uh, that was kind of my expectation. And then, you know, we've done two trials since then. So we didn't give up on the on the practice of trial work. but it was, it was stressful. I didn't like preparing for this case and doing that, that all that, all those outlines of all the witnesses mm-hmm. and all the preparing all the exhibits and stuff that was grinding. Yeah. And it should, it should probably be in this that, I mean, you're, sp- it, the emails are at all hours of the, you know, wee hours <laughs> of the morning and, you know, all day long. Yeah. Uh, and that's, you know, that's really when you're in trial, you, you may be unfairly to those uh, who you, who you love uh, around you subordinate, uh, you know, them to the work at hand. And that's, it really is what it, what's required, you know, uh, lots of long days and lots of painstaking, uh, hours trying to whittle this thing down and make it very simple and digestible. And it's surprising that the simple things, uh, you come up with take so much effort, but, um, that's, that's, you really have to make sense of a case especially one like this that has so many potential, you know, flat tires with these immunities and and perceptions of cycling and this and that. And I think we did a great job. I mean, I think we, we were completely reinforcing of each other's arguments. Yeah, I, I, I think it went well. But yeah, I um, uh, when you look at this case, you think, OK, they're riding bikes. They fall over in the sand pile. How, some, how difficult can it be? And it was a dogfight. Uh, the the county lawyers, I didn't think they were particularly good lawyers. They were okay. They were they were competent enough. They just weren't. Anyhow, um, but they uh, they they fought every little thing, even sometimes things that they should not have fought. And so uh, it it was not as straightforward as you would think just looking at it. And they lost on, on, they did. on all, all the big stuff. They lost. And, yes, uh, you know, if we could get around primary assumption of risk in some of these cases, uh, it would be a much better world for plaintiffs. I just uh, I just don't like that defense seeing its way into every little activity, uh, you know, solo. I could, it's my own editorial. I'm sorry, but because we fight <laughs> it every okay. time. And I don't think judges understand it very well from trial to trial because it's confusing. It's really a judgment call at some level. What are you going to call a the nature of the sport. What are you going to call it? And right. right. And, and at, at one point of some years ago, I'm, I'm not probably up to speed right now, but I had read every assumption of risk case there was because I was dealing with a case and, and trying to get around it. And when you look at the description of the, the final like definition from the California Supreme Court about what it is, it, it's really anything. It's walking down the street. It's a physical yeah. activity which carries a, you know, a, a risk of significant injury. You know, we've had people fall and, and on the street. Walking across the street and getting run over by a car also fits the definition under assumption of risk. And yet it doesn't get applied that way, but you worry about it getting applied that way. It got applied to that poor guy who went to Burning Man a few years ago and uh, got too close to the where the man was burning because he wanted to put in like notes from his uh, his dead friend or something or notes to his dead friend and he tripped and he fell over and landed on his hands on the burning ground and they said that's assumption of risk well he was standing next to the burning man 
uh, I mean, I don't get it. So right. that, that's the problem with it. Yeah, and there's also, there's golfing cases that go both ways, getting hit by yeah. in the head by a golf ball. Yes, it's some sort of risk. No, it's not in this other case. So it's it's a messed up area of law that, that uh, really has a lot of pitfalls for our side of the, of the thing. Yeah, well, and to bleed it together a little bit more with, I think the other issue that it's often mistaken for, and at least the minds of people analyzing, is comparative fault. I mean, the, mm -hmm. the idea of primary assumption of risk is that you were doing something that you knew could potentially hurt you, and then you got hurt. That sounds like you're making a, you know, a comparative fault argument against the plaintiff. And the better that argument sounds for comparative fault, the more often primary assumption of risk gets in the case, I think. And, and I think that judges uh, need to be more clear about when it applies and what it doesn't apply to. And I, I agree, the case law is terrible. It's, it, it could potentially apply to anything. Um, and then that's where these other arguments we're making in this case, the nature of the activity doesn't support application or the, you know, the increasing the inherent risk. Those arguments become more important. But you're fighting uh, that all the way through trial and plaintiffs. Uh, it's just another, you know, potential hurdle for a case to trip up on. Um, yeah, I wish there was more clarity to it. Yeah, I, I one other point on what we were just talking about about the the stress and work of trial. I lost 13 pounds on the trial we did last year, oh, so which wow. was which was kind of a bonus, but um, <laughs> yeah, it, it didn't last. But I I it, clearly I, I lost 13 pounds just working on that case. Yeah, on that trial. So what is it like going to trial and presenting a case? I think you people see Law and Order and they think that that is what it's like. That is. Um, that's exactly what it's like. It's, it's just like Law and Order. It's all the screaming and everything, yeah. Sam Waterston, that's what we were doing. Yeah, there's two trials that go on, really. I mean, you could probably talk about this as, you know, at multiple levels. But you have a trial that you're doing with the court when the jury's not around. And you're, you're arguing motions and you're deciding what evidence comes in and what, you know, instructions can be given and all these mechanical aspects of the process. But they're all, you know, subject to intense debate and you spend a lot of time doing it. And then the jury comes in and now you have this different trial where you're, uh, you're using, you know, other skills of persuasion and personality and, um, you know, you're marshalling the evidence. You've got to make sure you get all those little pieces in that you know you need to win your case. But at the same time, you have to be paying attention to perceptions going on in the courtroom. Um, your instinct at, at times might be contrary to, you know, what you probably should do. Um, you can get angry at what people say in a courtroom, but you can't show it, you know, there, or maybe you, you choose to. I mean, they're all very strategic decisions. Um, and I think that's why people that enjoy doing trial work really love being in trial more than anything else in lawyering. The problem is we don't get there very often. And also, you're not always there with a good case. And so uh, that joy of presenting the case is maybe separate from, you know, the pleasure you've had working it up or the pleasure you might get with the result of the trial. But I, I think it's uh, it's a lot of fun. Um, I Doug mentioned earlier, he's seen a lot of juries and, you know, you don't you really it's hard to tell what they're thinking. I mean, you, you feel good. You feel like you get uh uh, uh, some intimacy in the courtroom when you're the only one that gets to speak and people have to, to hear you and the jury hopefully is paying attention and you might get head nods and you might get smiles and you might read positive signs. And I don't know that any of that means anything uh, because we've had all those different juries and uh, you know, these things get lost uh, more often than they get won. Um, 
depending on what you know what what you're doing. So, I, w one comment I would like to make about the, the to answer your question, Lauren, about what's going to trial like is just something that um, has taken me many years to really come to terms with, which is um, I fully believed for a long time that law was about the facts and the law and that a case was about the facts and the law and and uh, that a trial is about the facts and the law. And so if you've got the law that's, uh, you know, relatively on your side and, and if you've got the facts that you can look at the law and say, look, here's how that law applies, we win. It, it's obvious. And I don't believe that anymore. Uh, I think it's all psychology. And, and that's probably exaggerated to say all, because you have to have some facts and you have to have some law. Um, but it's, it's trying to figure out what, what can appeal to the jury. And if you just present the facts in the law and you don't do it in a way that the jury is ready to receive, uh, you're beating head your head against the wall and you lose. Um, so you you have to always just kind of be aware of that, and and think about how do I present this in a way in a way that that's honest and that the jury can tell is honest, and in a way that that helps them see what's going on here. And I, um, so I I spend a lot more time thinking about. It. And I'll tell you one one of the things that always used to confuse me when I was a younger lawyer is. People would say, yeah, well, they really liked that witness or they really liked our party. They, they liked our plaintiff. And so they, they did well. And I always thought, what's that got to do with the facts and the law? You know, how, how uh, the jury reacts to a witness or to or to a um, or to a, a party. And I think it's huge. And uh, it, it took me a long time to figure that even though people were telling me that a long time ago, <laughs> it took me a long time to come to it. But now I fully believe it. Well, and there's, I mean, that goes to the expert practice too, because some, some people will spend an awful lot of time and money hiring, um, some just wonderfully, you know, courtroom ready, uh, personalities, um, that can be engaging with the jury and this and that. And I think really the philosophy is who cares what the facts and law are. If they really like my witnesses more than the other guy's witnesses, I'm going to win. And that really makes all of us who went into this for a different reason, kind of sad, but, right. um, you know, you've, obviously we, we've heard about all the theories to, uh, to control the jury process, uh, to be their leader, to establish tribes, to scare them, to, I mean, a lot of lawyers spend a lot of time trying to, uh, create a situation where the jury's going to react, uh, to their case. Um, and it's, you know, maybe the best people at doing that get the best results. Maybe not. I don't, I don't know. But um, I know it strays away from just presenting your client's case to a jury when you're really trying to play that second level game of, you know, getting Miss Miss Jones or Mr. Green to um, be afraid of what might happen to them if this collision isn't rectified. Um, and I don't know that I like that idea of trying to scare someone into a into a, an award. Um, but that's stuff that happens out there. So it doesn't have to do with the facts and the law at all sometimes. I, I, I know you guys, uh, there's a limit to how long you want to go on and make people listen to all this. But um, one last thing I would say, and this is uh, from one of the best lawyers I've ever encountered, who was uh, Frank Kelly with Shook Hardy and Bacon, big national firm. 
and he was on the other side of us in a Ford Motor Company case. He was the guy with the argument saying, yes, it's harder to steer, but not impossible to steer. And, and he beat us with that. But we, um, I probably shouldn't have done this, but one, it was one of their lawyers. They had five lawyers in our case. It was, it was the birthday for one of them. And they said, come out drinking with us. And, I, and we were in the middle of trial, so I, I shouldn't have done it, but I did it anyway. And uh, they were doing shots of Jameson. I could barely keep up. But anyway, I started talking to Frank, and he said that his belief, and he's done a lot of trials, had a lot of success, is that it's all about who you get on the jury. He said, once you get those people on the jury, the rest of what we do is theater. And I think that's also an exaggeration. And he was very careful and they worked very hard on that case. And so did we. It's more than theater. But the point he was making is that jury selection is the thing because you want the jurors who will receive the argument that, you, that you're going to make, I think is the gist of it. Um, and we've hired jury consultants. Sometimes it works out, sometimes it doesn't. But... Um, I, I, I've never forgotten that. And as I say, I, I have huge respect for Frank Kelly. I mean, I think you don't want the guy who I mean, we had a potential juror, Doug, um, on one of our last trials where he's saying we're all ambulance chasers and pretty much scumbags. We're like, we're probably you're probably not going to be too receptive of anything we say throughout this entire time. Might not be the best trial for him. Um, I, I, I said to that man in jury selection, yeah. when you say ambulance chaser, you're talking about me, right? You're not talking right. about the people on the other side. You're right. talking about me. And he got real uncomfortable. I said, no, 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 it's fine. No, I've been called fine. names before. I just want We've to hear you it. say it. Yeah. Right. <laughs> you're not certainly not talking about the defense. Right. So in this case, even though, you know, you won the trial, the case wasn't over, right? No, we, the, we, we, <laughs> we, these cases are never over. No. Uh, this accident, when? It happened in 2018? 17, I think. 17. Yeah. 2017. And it's 2023. Last year, we got it finally resolved. Yeah. Yeah. So we got, uh Right. We did the trial in 2019, maybe, and yeah, uh, got resolved in 2020, 2022. Yep. Well, I just I, I got paid out on my Greyhound case that was a 2010 accident, just in January of this year. So that was wow. you know new trial motion on appeal from the denial of new trial. So this one had you know had lots of post trial activity, all the motions, directed verdict, judgment notwithstanding the verdict, motion for new trial. Um, they appealed, we each had to, you know, and it, it was a copious trial record. I mean, I remember the appeal of the appellate briefs taking a long time to draft. Well, I uh, think th their brief was 80 something pages, their opening and reply brief. Um, and I know Lauren last night I was looking at the trial transcript and she's like, Oh, how, how many pages? Oh, it's 1500, just casual 1500 pages. So, I mean, it's a lot of information. Yeah, when I was going to get ready to talk to you guys today, I realized there was no possibility of really looking no. through everything. So uh, I hit the appellate brief too. But uh, but that's where it all kind of comes together. I mean, you could see what they were arguing, what we were arguing in sort of real time by looking at those briefs and what was at stake in the trial. I, I think really um, I, I, their briefing was, uh, you know, the arguing that the little sand, big sand doesn't matter. It's so obvious. No one should have hit it. 
I mean, it seemed like all the same dumb stuff we we already won. I mean, a jury 12 people told us we won, and then they're t- trying to take it away from us on the same issues. I, I thought it was a, a, a really baseless appeal for that reason, because, you know, once a jury uh, has agreed uh, to, the, to the answers for all of those things, it should be a done deal. And the appellate court's not going to disturb that unless they think they completely got it wrong. And they and they didn't. They, like you said, it was uh, 10 to 2, 11 to 1 jurors uh, agreeing on those things. Um, one of the things that, that is bothersome, I think, about this appeal is they had nothing to lose. Uh, ordinary private citizens who lose a trial, if they want to appeal, they have to post a bond, which means they have to put up a, a big amount of money, uh, basically an insurance company, an uh, insurance policy, I think it is, um, to cover the losses. And, and then they have to pay, um, if they lose on appeal and they owe a judgment, then they pay, I think, 10% per year annual judgment so the the actual amount can go up and it costs the money to post the bond um, and the county didn't have any of that the county as a public entity does not have to post a bond so that didn't cost anything and then on the the amounts we learned this on this case uh, on the the increase the, the the interest rate is less it's four percent instead of ten I think but it then it varies Okay, then that's um, even better. Yeah, so then the the county lodged our money with the court, and once they did that, the interest stopped running altogether. Yep. So there was no downside for them for it to take three years, and they kept their um, their appellate lawyer kept asking for extensions and delays on filing his paperwork, saying he was afraid his kids might get COVID or something. It was terrible ex- ex- excuses. And the court of appeal let him do it. So he got at least three or four extensions. So it, it, that's, so it dragged out all this time for us and our clients. And then the, the oral argument was, was very weak on their side. And Lindsay Russell knocked it out of the park on our side. And it was, there was nothing to be, nothing more to be said. Um, uh, they they just ultimately paid us. They just got a three year delay. Yeah, I echo all of that. For us, another issue when you're facing a public entity is even at the back end of the whole thing. Not all the immunities. You know, there's pre filing notice requirements we didn't discuss. You know, then you're on the back right. end. They get a break on interest. You know, you could argue it's the public. You know, it's public money. It's taxpayer dollars. We should protect those. Um, you know, but at the same time, it, it sounds like a sour argument in the face of a dangerous condition that the, the taxpayer dollars, you know, were there to clean up and, and weren't used for it. So I don't know. Maybe we have to- I think the Fish. other frust- the other frustrating thing to me is a lot of the times, you know, people don't realize this. Public entities have insurance policies just like we do. Yeah. You know, it's just like a business. So it's not necessarily those taxpayer dollars. Some are, you know, some are, but. Some of them are these massive towers of insurance, and they have layer upon layer. Uh, so it's insurance money, and then they get delay periods. There's all these different hurdles you have to jump through, and it just gets frustrating when they delay the appeal, and you can't force it along, and you're telling your injured client, sorry, you have to wait another year. And then, you know, of course, we can't bring up their insurance coverage right. at trial. right. We can't tell the jury that. And so, and they, they, on the other side, they can't say, look, this is going to be your taxpayer dollars paying right. for this. They're not allowed to do that, but it's implied. And as I said, mm-hmm. 
you're suing Fresno County in a Fresno County court with Fresno County jurors. Um, the, the, the idea that they might be worried about their taxes going up is very real. And I mean, one one good thing out of this, I know I, I told Doug earlier, um, but John, you haven't heard this yet. So Melissa last week had told us that she drives that road quite frequently. Uh, and even after all of this, you know, torrential downpours that we've had recently, the road's clean. Oh, really? Well, that's yeah. Good. So it, it made a difference. That's good to know. Well, uh, one, one of the, I thought we heard they, they started a monthly sweep policy after this. I think that's what they did. And one of the things that they told us before the trial, they said, we will never let you win this because if you do, that's bad for the county because it puts an onerous burden on the county mm-hmm. to, to keep things clean. But and so they were talking about, in, in essence, the and I think and they argued that they argued that in um, and at least their post-trial briefs. Yeah. Um, that this was a, t- a terrible thing for Fresno County that they were held responsible for this, but I have to say, with what Melissa has told us, it's a great thing for the population of Fresno County that they don't have this this particular dangerous condition to have to worry about anymore. Yep. Um, so we, I think we did, although I I told you we I'm not usually a very noble thinker when I think when I'm taking on one of these cases. I think we did a good thing here um, because we did get them to clean that up. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. So I think that's it. Um, I'm sad, you know, we didn't have you guys bring your drums and guitar. Yeah, next time. Next podcast. Next time. I've got my sticks in the in the office here if you want to. If you need you want, want a solo? Yeah. No, I don't. But I'd no? love to hear. I'd love to hear John solo. There you go. Oh, okay. All we right. do have it. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Okay. Well. Thank you both for joining us. Um, so next week, if you guys tune in, you're going to hear back from Melissa about what it's like sitting through a trial when it's your own case and what it's like going through the litigation process um, when she was so patient to to deal with it for, I think, five years. Uh, so you will hear from her next week. Excellent. Very good. Yeah. And David is interested. I talked Perfect. To so if you do, you, do I need to make a connection with for you guys? Sure. Okay. That would be great. So next week you'll hear from David and Melissa possibly. Excellent. All right. Thank, thanks. Thanks for having us on, you guys. Thank you. Thank very you. Much. Thank Bye. you. All right. So for those of you who are just now starting with our podcast, go back and start listening from episode one. You can follow us on our social media on Facebook. It is a place in the courtroom podcast. On Instagram, it's at a place in the courtroom. You can find us on our website at www.aplaceinthecourtroompodcast.com or you can send us an email at a place in the courtroom at gmail.com. And we'll see you in the next episode. All right. Bye.